Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design in Melbourne at RMIT University. And I'm here with uh, Jackie Fotty-Lowe, who's the owner of Hub Furniture Lighting Living in Melbourne and Sydney. I said before Jackie came onto the show, I don't know if we're going to have enough time. <laughs> I think this is kind of a couple of hours session. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Jackie. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. Jackie, you're an interesting one. You started as a town planner. I and, did. And then went to study architecture at Melbourne University. Yep. Um, and then you didn't practice architecture or you did a few projects on I your own? I did. I practiced both. I started my, my very early years at Dendercourt Marshall, wandering around their offices in total awe of what they did. And then I moved to a very small practice where I got lots of hands-on experience. Um, so I moved between planning, architecture, study, working, right up until I bailed on both and set up Hub. It's a brave move. I remember when the shingle went out in yeah. Elizabeth in <laughs> Exhibition Street yeah. and you, uh, it was Exhibition Street Exhibit, and, yeah. the, and the yeah. showroom was about to open and I wasn't quite sure if this was such a great idea. <laughs> I don't think you were the only one actually. <laughs> I thought that was an extraordinary in terms of um, <clears throat> making that leap. Um, yeah. You now employ 45, 50 people. That's right, yeah. Uh, you know, that must have been, I mean, why furniture and lighting? What was it that you felt was needed in Australia? Yeah, I think at the time, I mean, ignorance is bliss. So jumping in and doing what we did was easy because you don't know really what you're jumping into. So that's that's how you kind of start when you're young. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> um, but I had just been working in both planning and architecture and Andrew had started doing a lot of work on the side in furniture and it just seemed like an opportunity. And once I met Patricia Moroso and Patricia Ecciola in um, Milan and that relationship started to take off. Um, and what, they didn't have a supplier <laughs> in Australia? They or? did, but they were at a point of change and in two ways, as a company under her guidance and leadership and then in Australia with their partner at the time. So the partner at the time in Australia was coming to its conclusion after 20 years and the company in Italy was blossoming under Patricia's directorship. So we sort of aligned in a moment when they needed something new and we were doing something new. And whilst there were a lot of competitors in the market who were clawing for also opportunity, I think what they saw in me as a young sort of 29, 30 year old was a lot of energy, a lot of focus, a lot of commitment um, and an absolutely burning desire to be successful. And I think they felt that was aligned with where they were as a company. Patricia Urquiola is probably one of the world's leading designers without doubt now. Correct. Not only a brilliant designer, mm. but also one of the nicest in the industry. Yeah. <laughs> what do you see in her work that you don't see in other people's work? I think she has a freedom to interpret what she sees in a way that's unencumbered. So she doesn't restrict herself when she thinks about what she needs to do. She just has, she gives herself free reign and she runs practically in any direction creatively that she feels is responsive to the brief at the time. Um, she flourishes best when she's left alone. I think the, the more restraint you put on her, I think the less of a of a Patricia Akiola result you get. Um, so her relationships are always the strongest where she has the freedom or where there's an understanding of how she works. And that's why the two Patricias work so seamlessly together and why her work for 
Moroso has always been so creative. Um, I don't know. Look, you've done so much in such a short time, Jackie. I'm kind of... <laughs> I should have made a whole list. But you tend to take on... You're very supportive of uh, not just great designers overseas. Uh, obviously, it's easier for them to find distributors for their work. But a lot of Australia's emerging and even mid-career designers, you represent now the work of Henry Wilson, yep. uh, who does beautiful um, lighting, um, Bruce Rowe, ceramics. How do you find these people and or do they find you? And what are you actually looking for? How do you know it's right? How do I know it's right? It's a strange thing. There's no recipe for it. And it doesn't, it's not a, I find them or they find me. Sometimes it's one way or another. But what I do tend to find is I get a lot put in front of me on a daily basis. Um, and often the team will, will not really understand why one thing gets my attention and another thing doesn't. And I do try to explain to them what it is that I see but it's hard because it's intuitive um it's like you know why you like someone the first moment mm. you see them without even perhaps having spoken to them there's so much layered in the history of what you've seen up to that moment that that influences the decision mm. but I I do I guess recognize when I see something original mm. or when I see something that has us a robustness but a softness that the market's going to respond to. I seem to have um, a knack for identifying those things and often when I know it's going to be good, it's really good. Mm -hmm. And when I have a suspicion that maybe something's not quite right, it often isn't right. Mm -hmm. And when I don't listen to my gut intuitive response to something, it can be my downfall. So I've tended now to trust very much that initial feeling about whether something speaks to me personally and not to think that that's something I shouldn't do. Like I allow myself now to say, I'm happy. I like it. I feel confident. I will run with it just because I like it, not for any other reason. Um, your partner, um, Andrew Lowe, does mm. beautiful furniture, timber furniture, which is produced for your showroom in Melbourne and Sydney. Do you often uh, have that dilemma or that discussion with Andrew at night and go, look, I've just gone with this designer. I'm feeling a bit queasy. Does he become like the backstop? <clears throat> no. Uh, I'll have, I'll, I'll give you the discussion. Jack, what do you think of this design? I don't like it. Why? You haven't even given it a chance. I'm like, well, I don't like it. It's like, well, you should put it out there and give it a chance. Well, well, I'm not going to because I just don't feel like it's been resolved well enough. I think you need to look at this, this, this. And he'll he'll crawl away very angry at me and take it back into the workshop. And they will either concede defeat and rework it or recognise something that they already knew and address it. On the one hand, that's one type of discussion. On the other hand, they will present things that are just perfect and I look at it and I'm like that is fantastic just make me two for each showroom that's it um Jackie do you tend to uh, work with designers in a very collaborative way like do you say look I'm I think this light's almost there it's not going to suit our market so could you change it a little bit so it becomes yeah. an exclusive product for hub or do you are you okay with it being out there somewhere else in the world. Yeah, I tend not to do that so much because I think that's not really my place to completely judge what is and isn't going to be good. And it's not that it's not good, it just may not be good for me. And it may have a perfectly great life 
in in someone else's sphere of influence. Um, so I I tend not to do that. That said, I do love to collaborate. So with someone like Bruce, um, Bruce Rowe and the ceramics. I mean, it's all his creative work, but I love that bouncing backwards and forwards. And when an opportunity comes up, and you know, how about we think about doing this? And he's like, I've got these ideas, and I trust him, so he runs with it. So there is the collaborative. Um, the, the the collaboration does happen, but it's really only Andrew that I point the finger at and say, no, I don't, don't do it like that, do it another way. But otherwise I'll leave people pretty much to themselves. Um, you would tend to be pretty much on the money with new designers worldwide. Um, in the case of Too Good, Faye Too Good mm. and her sister... Yeah, uh, she has... A... What's this? Faye and... Well, Faye Too Good's the main designer. Yeah. Um, quite extraordinary. I mean... Uh, she was. She's become quite a big name in London now. Mm. And you mentioned you were you were going to be bringing her out uh, shortly. Some yeah. of her furniture. Yes. Uh, she also does fashion. Uh, the label's Too Good. Quite brave because a no one's heard of Too Good no. outside of UK <clears throat> and Europe. Mm. Even though she has exhibitions with Tom Dixon and all sorts of people. How did that start? And are you nervous? I'm <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, always a little bit nervous because I don't have um, sort of this unnerving edge mm. to do everything. I do, I do question almost everything I do. I, I think that's what keeps me sharp, really. If I stop questioning, then I probably need to really worry. But um, I'd been tracking Faye's work for about two or three years, just quietly myself, and primarily her... Her, her fashion and her furniture, although she's so prolific in other areas, which is what makes her quite unique and very much, I think, the new the new guard. But <clears throat> I literally was one night just trawling through images of hers, wondering why I hadn't had the confidence yet to approach her. And in just that one moment, I thought, you know what? Caution to the wind. Just put it out there. If she doesn't find me a good fish, she'll let me know and it won't happen. But I did start a conversation and through that dialogue we've met um, and concurrently NGV were acquiring some of her work, which was a nice um, sort of... It, it gave me confidence that I was also on the right track when someone like the NGV is kind of tracking the same thing. So through discussions with her, I think she felt that we were absolutely... Uh, a perfect vehicle for what she's trying to do because we're so multidisciplinary ourselves because I track more than just furniture but across a whole breadth of um, creative endeavours I find all of that very interesting because we've got such great links with a number of other organisations like NGV then the relationship just blossomed very very quickly when I met them in Milan this year um, and we've got some tremendously exciting ideas planned with her that bring her sensibility as a designer into Melbourne and Sydney in a way that has never really been done before. So it's not a pure exhibition. It's not a product launch. It's something without saying too much. It's more about bringing a touch of everything that she works on and lives with and drinks and clothing, everything into an environment where we can experience as if we're living with Faye Too Good. So I think Faye Too Good, she's an interesting one uh, with her and her sister. Um, they started doing, I remember with their first fashion foray was they wanted, they did a series of coats and they had things like a psycho, what would a, uh, a psychologist 
wear <laughs> if they needed a coat. Yeah. So it's kind of all these secret pockets and maybe there was an imprint of Freud on the back. But they kind of put their messages out there, what would an architect's coat look like? So very interesting way of working. But their furniture is quite different. And I would have thought, Jackie, quite a different market from what you, who you normally go to, like architects, designers, mm. because their work's almost... I mean, I haven't seen the latest. There's a, an element of... Uh, it's quite primitive in parts. Yeah, it is, and very sculptural. And almost like sculpture. Quite archaic. But the thing that's lovely about my position is that I'm free to explore any area of design that I feel is interesting, relevant, and um, not just be locked into how many units I'm going to sell mm. because that's so one-dimensional. Because um, at the end of the day, if you only sell a few pieces, the thought of having too yeah. good in in yeah. your display room in your showrooms actually brings a whole new discussion to the, yeah. well, to the place. There's a discourse that's happening internationally and in Australia that I want to be a part of. And when I hear an interesting conversation happening somewhere, I want to bring it to the people that I'm also conversing with so that we can have an interesting conversation. So um, I don't see tremendous boundaries between, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of discussion around, you know, does European design belong in Europe and what's an Australian design and everyone's trying to, you know, not buy from this market and we're, we're it's global. We're, we're a group of people living on one tiny planet and I think if we can all come a little bit more together, we'll probably break down a few boundaries and design, you know, it's a big stretch but design has a part to play in that and being open to what's happening internationally not just because it's going to make money is really important to me. The other thing that I read recently is that apart from very high design and, you know, hub lighting furniture living is mm. high design, mm. you're also, I read somewhere that you were starting a new, um, yeah. very, at the other extreme, <laughs> a very rustic, it sounds very rustic, a, a general store near where you live in um, in the country. Yeah, so I live in Kangaroo Ground, so I'm a bit of a hike, and we frequent the Kangaroo Ground general store almost every few days, and we're always topping up. And that idea of the old Australian general store has always resonated with me, but also the idea of being able to access lots and lots of day-to-day -day things. And so my sister, Sandra, who started Piccolina, the gelateria in Hawthorne, has a space in Smith Street in Collingwood, and she's going to be opening her new store there. And on the top floor of that building is a space that is um, extra. She doesn't need it. So she's said, do you want to do something there? And I thought, well, that's the perfect opportunity for me to take the idea of the general store and execute it in a way that doesn't work in Hub's main store. Not for any reason, but the two things just clash a little bit. What type of products? Um, beautiful scissors, beautiful pens, pencil sharpeners, stationery, anything at all. There is no... Um, there is no area that I won't go if it's beautifully made in the in a country where I know they've been making it for 100 or 200 years. Um, tube ringers coming out of the US so that you can get the most out of your toothpaste tube. And um, there is a, a, an honesty and a rigour and a very um, basic, 
the product has to be quite basic. It's not mm. going to be fancy. It's not going to be expensive. There's not going to be... Um, because I think that's the problem with design. Generally, yeah. it's still seen as quite elitist. That, no, like, you know, yeah. it doesn't apply to me. But, you know, this is a way of showing, well, design can actually be really functional, yeah. really simple and really quite inexpensive. Well, I'm excited about stocking velvet soap, which you can get at any supermarket. It's <laughs> not, it's not uh, how elite the piece is. It's the fact that people... The, the number of people who don't know about velvet soap. <laughs> I don't a, know about velvet oh, soap. <laughs> well, you'll have to come to the general store. But um, it will take a stain out of anything. It's the best thing on your skin. It's been in the same packaging since the 50s. Yeah. And with a very simple soap cage out of stainless steel, you can shake it around in a warm bath and soak anything in it. I mean, it's tremendous. No one knows about these things. And the supermarkets are narrowing and narrowing and narrowing their offering to their mm. own brands. And where where does velvet soap end up? I don't know. I don't need to open a whole store for it. <laughs> but at the same time, there are so many things as quirky as that right a across the spectrum. So all my vintage will be in there. I've had 15 years of collecting vintage items from flea markets all around the world. And, and where's it going to be open, Um It's 296 Smith Street in Collingwood. Mm. And when's it going to be opened? We're aiming for October. Aiming for October. So I'm just about to put my... Um, payment down on a big open fireplace <laughs> and a couple of big leather chairs to sit in front and there'll be books and just just a place to go. There's no signage to the street. We have no street frontage at all. Um, you'll just have to find out about it to enjoy it and I love that. Um, I've got so many things I need to ask you, Jackie, but <laughs> I just think we're running out of time. I can't keep up with you, basically. <laughs> That's my problem. Um, and I can honestly say there are a few I've said that to, but you seem to be on to the next project before something's even completed. Oh. Do you miss architecture or do you feel... Oh, terribly, but I'm so close to it in another way that I probably get to enjoy it as much in the industry that I'm in as if I was actually practising. How, how does being an architect and a planner affect the way you see furniture? Oh, the best foundation are the studies for me the study in architecture and planning too but probably more architecture just because it's so broad and it brings you a sense of scale proportion balance aesthetic it hones so many um, ideas around um, form and function and you you start with the classics in architecture and you move right through that sort of minimalist period in the 30s and then come through the 70s the 80s the 90s and if you're paying attention there is so much material to digest and I tend to take a lot in, I assess it internally and then I, I guess it comes out in the choices that I make and for me, architecture is probably always going to be my first love. Look, thanks so much for coming on the oh, program today, Jackie. I think we will have you back to discuss thanks, the next <laughs> the next section of your life. Thank you. But um, I literally can't keep up. Oh, um, I can slow uh, down. Um, I should slow down. <laughs> but, um, look, it's lovely coming across people who are so passionate. Thank and you. really, when you did open in 2003, my, you know, I did have <laughs> knots in my stomach thinking, I hope she's done the right thing. I think you obviously have, you have, you proved it, and look, well done. Thank so. you. I have a very, very competent team of people who have been with me, some from the very beginning, um, Nathan, Banji, Deb, mm. uh, Keely, who have so many. I, I almost don't want to start because 
I, it is not just me. I have a creative idea and then there is a huge number of people who are committed to it, who are running in their own directions without me entirely, mm-hmm. who um, are competent and skilled. And Well, I think when you have 50 people, you really need to yeah, delegate a bit. Yeah, I, 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 I feel... I feel like this room should be full of about, you know, of 40 other people. It's really, it's it's my voice, but it's not just me. Well, look, thanks for coming on the program. You've been Thank with you, Stephen. Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening.